Whatever. Okay, so I got some announcements. We're just going to talk two things as we get going here. First off is uh, Imams. Uh, every once in a while throughout the year, they do some different events. Uh, they have rented out the Lompoc Aquatic Center on September 25th. And if you are a family who wants to go to that, you're interested for, you know, bring the kids and the parents and everybody. Uh, there's only 100 spots that are rented out, though. And those spots go very, very fast. It is free. It's a free event. But sign up on the sign-up sheet in the back because, again, those spots go very, 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 very fast. So sign up for that. September 25th will be a whole lot of fun. And the other only thing I have to tell you about is we are actually moving baptisms from September 4th. Now, dun, dun, dun. it's Labor Day weekend. Labor Day weekend is always tough sometimes because, like, oh, I really want to get baptized, but it's Labor Day weekend, and I can't be. Oh. So, so we're actually going to move them to October 16th. And on September 4th, we're going to do a groundbreaking ceremony. So, it'll be really, it's, it's not that the building is more important than people getting baptized, but we're trying to help people out, you know, put in a little bit later, so it's not on Labor Day weekend for you, and, uh, and then do our groundbreaking. So, at 1 p.m., so that means if you come, normally come to the service, you'll, you'll probably leave and go do something and come back. When you come back, 1 p.m. on September 4th, Labor Day weekend, okay, you're going to bring back a lawn chair, there'll be a reason for that, and a shovel, okay? So, I want everybody to have a lawn chair and a shovel. If you have little kids, bring those little kid shovels. Those, those plastic ones, I mean, the ground's like rocks, so they're going to break it. It'll be so sweet. Boom, I broke my shovel. That's my little kid voice. I, I, sorry, that's all I got. But, uh, and also, in the next couple weeks, because we are, are going to, right before that, hopefully uh, tear out that parking lot that's ours back there. And so we're going to give you some like instructions on where and how to park if you park back there, because parking's going to be extremely limited. When they kind of get done with all this, <laughs> they said it was going to be March. <laughs> anyway, uh, there'll be some more parking over here, but we're going to give you some ways to, of how to get to where our parking is going to be. We're going to smooth that enough that you can park out there and stuff like that. But it'll be a little bit of a walk. You can handle it. You know, a lot of us, never mind. So, and we're parking out there. I, I feel like everything I'm going to say just sounds so bad this morning. So I just got to watch myself before I say something that's just crazy. So, I know, I know I'm doing so much better, right? I know. It is so bad because I still want to say what I was going to say. Because uh, <laughs> I have no filter. If you are newer to Element, oh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room look like this. On the inside, they got some notes and questions that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on... Uh, you click on more and then events in version, and we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, questions, verses, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here, sometimes, unfortunately, for you. <laughs> Why don't you stay on the reading of God's Word? This is Acts chapter 9, verse 32. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Luda. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be people who simply trust you who don't always have to run around and second-guess everything that's happening around us, but we can place ourselves firmly in your hands and trust that you have us and that we can live lives that bring you great glory as your people live in great joy. Amen. Let's see. All right, so this is the book of Acts, week 28. This week we're returning to a, back to a guy named Peter after we, after we looked at Paul's interlude and salvation story the last few weeks. Uh, the reason we are doing the book of Acts is to come face-to-face with the early church, how they lived, the things they learned, even their failures and how they grew 
from their mistakes. We also want you to understand that we know that a lot of you will not spend the rest of your life in Santa Maria or even California as taxes get too high or we run out of water and everybody's got to go somewhere. But we want you to find a church where no matter where you end up. And we, there are certain characteristics we believe those churches should have. You can go online and look at all the ones we've been looking at. If you look on the left of your notes, those are also listed right there. And hopefully you will get an idea of what we as Element are longing and striving for. Not that we're perfect, but we've got a dream. And it is always good to have a dream. Because sometimes it feels like just a dream. But anyway, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Today's going to feel like I'm jumping around through a lot of things. Uh, my friend John, the guy that writes the sermon notes, actually said he thought I was going to lose all of you this morning and I was going to get blank stares. I give you more credit than that. Okay, I really do. I do. So as we talk through various things, keep in mind the big idea we're talking about is no matter what you do or I do or where we go, God always goes before us. Because if God wasn't there, there wouldn't actually be there. So God is always, his power precedes us, and it's so hard for us to understand what this means because we always want answers. We want to know exactly what's happening. We don't want any guesswork in our lives. And yet God seems to always place in front of us all of these open doors, and we get paralyzed because we think if we make the wrong decision, well, our life is just shot. At the time of writing this message, I was halfway through a book about God's open doors in our lives. It's called All the Places You'll Go. It's kind of a parody of that Dr. Seuss book. That's not my reading level, but, you know, I'm just saying. It's... So I stole some of that for this message. But the early church really had a ton of open doors in their lives. They had a ton of decisions they got to make. Like, where do they proclaim the good news of Jesus to? Well, the answer is wherever they were. And what city should they invest their time in? Well, the answer really is whatever city that they were in. Another question is, what's the best route to take out of the city when the crowds decide they want to kill us? That's always... and, and the evacuation plan is always a good thing to have at times. Now, our questions today for God are a little different, especially if you're younger. Your questions are like, who should I date? Uh, who should I marry? Uh, how do I know if they're the right one? Or how do I tell them that I think they're the right one if they don't think they're the right one? Yeah, yeah. You know, what school should I go to? What major should I have? What job should I take? How should I support my family? Where should we live? What if I pick the wrong one? In Batman, you got Harvey Dent. He'd always flip a coin to decide. Today, people look at horoscopes and consult psychics and ask God to do something really bizarre in their lives so they know that he was telling them something. I was talking to one of my friends a couple weeks ago, and he said, and he said I got rid of my car because I, I told God, if you want me to get rid of this car, have it break down. And the car broke down, and he, then he got it fixed. And then he said, okay, God, really, if you want me to sell this car, have it break down. And the car broke down. And so he got it fixed again. And he said, really, God, really, if you really want me to sell this car, and it broke down again, so he got rid of the car. I don't know if that's God or if he just bought a really crappy car. It was a Dodge, so just saying. <laughs> oh. People from ancient times, they read tea leaves, animal entrails. They looked at the stars for all of these unanswerable questions. What am I supposed to do in my life? People, even kids, they would do Ouija boards and tarot cards and Charlie Charlie and drawing strings and casting lots all the way to flipping coins. In ancient, Rome, they had, in ancient Rome, they had these people called augurs. And what they would do is they would read flight patterns of bird. They'd call it taking the auspices. And even today, when there's an ominous occasion, we call it an auspicious occasion because it comes from this. In the 80s and 90s, you had the Psychic Friends Network. They made millions of dollars before they went bankrupt. You'd think they would have seen that coming, by the way, right? One writer said this, if they really were psychic friends, wouldn't they call you? I mean, shouldn't even making an appointment to see a psychic be like a moot point because you shouldn't have to? I knew you were coming. What's your name again? Right. You know, the, the, really. 
Today, people get so paralyzed trying to make decisions. And if you look at the scriptures, now the early church went about their business, as they grew in knowing who God was in their lives, it became totally different. I mean, this section starts, Acts 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Luda. Now, Luda is the New Testament name of the city called Lod. It's north of Jerusalem. Here's a map for you. So you got Luda, and the next is Joppa. He actually goes to Joppa as well, so they're, so they're both right there. It's five miles north of a place called Emmaus, which is where Jesus, after he rose from the grave, walked on this road with these guys to the city called Emmaus. It's kind of five miles north of, north of that. Interesting side note, uh, during their crusades, King Richard the Lionheart, who both, who both Muslims and Christians liked, he built a church in Luda that you can still visit the ruins to this day. So you have Peter here. He's going here and there. And when it says these words, what it almost means in the Greek is this idea, of he was wandering around. Why? Because God just told him to go. He's like, where should I go? And God's like, just go. So Peter just kind of wandered around and went here and there. Now, this is a little different than a couple weeks ago when God talks to Philip and says, Philip, go down to Gaza. And so he goes down to Gaza. But that's really usually rare. Usually God's just like, just go. You go all the way back to Genesis 12. You got Abraham, patriarch of like, you know, the, the Christian and the Jewish faith. And you got this guy named Abraham and God shows up when he's 65 years old and says, just leave and go. Where? I'll tell you later. Just go. And he starts to go in kind of wander. And God just says, I'll be with you. And wherever Peter ended up was where God wanted him to be. Why? So he could begin to talk about the good news of Jesus. I mean, Jesus has this great commission to go into all the world and spread the gospel. And we think, that sounds too broad. Can he give me a plane ticket where he wants me to go or put an X on a map so I just know exactly where it is? I mean, is God not just saying go specific enough? It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. And the early disciples got this because they understood the difference between faith and superstition or faith and magic. Magic and superstition is always trying to get some force so you can get your own agenda. It gives the illusion of some knowledge where there isn't any knowledge at all. Like we all want to blame our failures on bad luck or chance. Groucho Marx once said this, if a black cat crosses your path, it signifies that the animal is going somewhere. (laughs) So Orberg in his book, he writes this, superstition seeks to use the supernatural for my purposes. Faith seeks to surrender to God's purposes. Faith believes that God is in control. Even in that, though, superstition always rears its ugly head. Well, I got to do this, I got to do that, or God's not really going to do this, and we don't think that God's really in control. Sometimes we pray for God's will, but we don't really want God's will because we really want our will and not God's will. We don't have all this anxiety in trying to make a decision. Some people never do anything, and they say, well, I'm waiting on God to give me clear direction. We say that because we get so stressed out worrying if we might make the wrong decision. As if God has laid a million choices in front of you and said, you better pick the right one, and if you don't, you're through. I mean, you look back into the garden. you got Adam and Eve. They're in this garden, and God created everything and said, don't eat from this one tree. What could Adam and Eve do in the garden? Anything. Anything. What was God's will? Anything, except don't dishonor me. Don't disobey me. I mean, at the point where I am today, I could probably give you five good decisions that were huge, that after I made them, I clearly thought they were wrong. <laughs> and because they brought hardship and pain. But now I think they're some of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Because decisions we make are not about getting away from pain, they're about growing. And God wants us to grow into the people he's calling us to be. It says, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Luda. This is also a very important word called saints in that one line. Saints is this word called hagios, and it's how the New Testament refers to God's people. It means set apart ones or set apart for God's purposes. We are not our own. 
And when we're always trying to get the easy route, that's for us. That's not for God. It's us trying to make our lives about us. People who are set apart are meant to be set apart for his purposes, not our own. And that means we don't always get the exact location. We don't always know exactly what job we're supposed to pick. But we get to live for his glory no matter where we end up because we live for who he is in front of everyone. I believe that God has a vision for who we're meant to be when we live as his people. I think when we surrender our lives to God's will, rather than trying to get God to always surrender to our will, we begin to live the life God intends for us here and now. And sometimes that's not really that pretty and it's difficult. I mean, look at all the apostles. Every single one of them got killed except for John, and that wasn't for lack of trying to kill him. They just couldn't kill him. I mean, as we live this life, we're supposed to live in harmony with God's intentions for us. The life of heaven becomes more pronounced in our present lives. And that's been God's intention ever since the beginning. We are saints, not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done. God has set us apart. God makes us in his image. We're supposed to reflect the beauty and creativity and wonder of the God who made us by trusting him. And Jesus is constantly calling us to return to who we are meant to be, a people of God who trust him. But so often we veer off course and try and do our own thing because we don't really trust God and who he is. We lose, we lose trust in the version, God's version of our story. And this is why we hold on to superstitions. Well, if I just do this or just do that, then this thing will happen. It's why we look at God through a lens of works. If I do these things, then God has to do this thing. Instead of trusting that faith is all about Jesus and what he has done. I mean, you must trust and I must trust that God can repair the scarred and broken image in us through redemption in him. We must trust that we are loved and that God knows exactly what he's doing when he made us and that he doesn't have any accidents. And this can be scary because we have so many unexplained circumstances in our lives. But it can also breed great faith when we trust him when we are going from here to there just like Peter. Why? Because we are saints. We are his As his image bearers, he gives us the ability to make decisions. We have free will. I think God's will is always freer than ours. But we don't need to be so afraid of decisions when when we love God above all things because it will influence our decisions and help us make better decisions based upon what brings him glory and not necessarily always ourselves. It will change a lot of the stupid decisions that we make into better ones. There's a guy at Princeton. His name is Walter Kaufman, and he made up this word. I love this word. It's called decidophobia. Decidophobia. It's a great word because they're so afraid of making decisions. Like, you ever go to a restaurant and no matter what you order, you know, the waiter or waitress says, oh, excellent. Oh, wonderful. Oh, that's a great choice. Oh, you're going to love that. Oh, that's perfect. They will do that from appetizers to drinks to the main course to dessert. There have been studies that have been done that show that you will enjoy your experience out better if someone is always validating you. And so what you have now done is taken all these diners who are afraid of choosing the wrong thing, and we take our waiters and waitresses, who nobody tips well enough, by the way, and we've turned them into little therapists because we can't handle being wrong. Oh, it's so wonderful. They're like, "Ah, dummy. I wouldn't eat that. Oh, that's great. You know. God intends for us to choose and to choose well. How do we do that? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. I know you're thinking, I asked God for wisdom and he didn't tell me door A or door B and let's make a deal. That's not what it's talking about. Let me ask you this. In the scriptures, what's the beginning of wisdom? Anybody? Fear of the Lord, respect of the Lord, love of God, putting him first in all things. So when you make a decision, who do you put first? 
you put you and your wants, or do you put God first in your decisions? Paul says, Philippians 1.9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So when you make a decision, is the criteria loving God and loving others paramount in your mind above everything else? Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Has God renewed your mind, or are you still focused on you? Because the you who is focused on you will always be worried about every decision that you make. Did I do it right? Did I do it wrong? Is anything going to work out? I just don't know. So why is this so important to what you look at in the book of Acts, and, and especially the forward proclamation of the good news of Jesus? Because Peter, he seems just to be wandering. But to him, everywhere he goes, he can lift up Jesus, he can connect with the saints, the people of God, and call people into the goodness of Jesus, even in the midst of their poor decisions and their good decisions and their suffering and their health issues. And that same thing is said to you. Because saints aren't people who have been venerated by some church. A saint is what God makes you because of his goodness. In the midst of where Peter goes today, he runs into two saints that have health issues. One is bedridden, the other is dead. That's a health issue, in case you don't know. And Peter, by seeming to wander... Knowing that he is sent, he goes to this town of Luda. So Acts 9, verse 33 says, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. They actually be interpreted as Jesus is now healing you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Peter knows he's supposed to live for God no matter where he is, no matter where he finds himself. And notice what he doesn't do here. He doesn't say, I obeyed God, I made the right decisions, I'm here by divine appointment, and because of my faith and your faith, you are healed. He doesn't do that. He takes no credit and gives all of the glory and the power to who Jesus is. And I think this is funny, because as soon as he heals Aeneas, Peter tells him to get up and make his bed. (laughs) Why? Because Aeneas has a decision to make right now. How is he going to live the rest of his life? Is he going to be self-focused? Is he going to be mad at God because apparently Jesus could have healed him any time in the last eight years but waited until this moment? So he's going to be all mad. Why didn't you heal me sooner? Why eight years? Or is it going to be outward focused on the mission of God? Rise and make your bed has a couple connotations to it. Gentlemen, if you do not know, you should learn how to make a bed and make it. That's what you should do. Uh, You know who makes the bed in our house? Me. My wife washes the sheets, but I make the bed. She says that's because, you know, I, I make the corners better. Because she, you know, I think it's just because, you know, I'm manly and I have the strength of 12 gorillas. But <laughs> Seriously, too many men spend too much of the day dreaming of their pillow when they need to be dreaming of God's calling in our lives. God has placed a million open doors in front of us every single day, and we are too lazy to step through them. Guys, when you get up, you do not need your bed the rest of the day. So make it and move on. If you are married, you have my permission to mess up the covers again for other reasons. But this is what we call part of Aeneas' sanctification. Sanctification is just this big Christian word, and it means that God is making us more and more into his likeness day by day by day by day. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What that means is because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we are made perfect in God's sight, but day by day by day by day, he is making more as more holy, more set apart. And Naeus has spent eight years of his life in bed. His friends have come to roll him over, change his sheets, make his bed, clean his bed sores, and now he himself has to make his own bed because his bed is not his home anymore. 
You know, what decision does he make? Well, you know what decision he made because he got up and everybody was amazed and the response of getting up was to give God glory, not Peter and not Aeneas. They gave God glory in this. Now, while Peter is there in Luda, others hear about him and they come to see him, Acts 9.36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I'll translate that again for you. It means gazelle. So if you've ever been called a dork, you'd be like, yes, I'm a gazelle. Okay? She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, this is where a lot of people in our culture would say things like, look at all the acts of charity she was doing. Why why would she die? Why do bad things happen to good people? As if our works obligate God to do our will. I tell you this all the time. Christianity, it is not voodoo. It is not witchcraft where we try and manipulate God to do what we want him to do. Tabitha chose to do good works in response to God's love and grace. Not for what she'd get from God, but because of what she already got from God. She got redemption and grace. She had been received and loved by Him. Verse 38. Since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. See, the, see Peter's like, like a pastor. It's, who do you always ask to pray at an event? Because he's closer to God. He's not. Everybody just thinks that. But let's go get Peter, because if we pray, it's not. But if he prays, that'd be even better. So they go to get him. You should have my life on Thanksgiving. That's all I'm saying to you. Or any larger event. Let's pray. Aaron. Thanks, God, for the food. Amen. That was too short. Whatever. Verse 39. So Peter rose and went with them. So what's Peter's decision? He goes. He goes, well, he goes, okay, I'll go, and he, and he goes. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and the other garments that Dorcas made while she was with him. So he shows them, they all, did you see all the stuff she made? She's so awesome, she's so wonderful. That's my widow voice. It sounds like every voice I have, okay, <laughs> I just got the one. And these days, funeral services were held in people's homes, and so you see all the people Tabitha had been helping. What? How do you know? Because they're all clothed. The clothes they were wearing were clothes that she made for them because of God's call in her life. Verse 40, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, so he prays first. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And I used to wonder about this. You know, why did he send everybody outside? I honestly think, again, this comes down to the idea of decisions. I think God told Peter what he was supposed to do when he got there. Peter was like, okay, I'm going to go do that. But I think in the midst of that, maybe... He's kind of a little like us, and if maybe he thinks he didn't hear God correctly, he didn't want somebody around to see if he looked at Tabitha and said, Tabitha, arise, and nothing happened. You know, he's just kind of, just kind of laid there. I mean, I have sat in a room with people, not very often when this happens, but I've sat in a room with people sometimes, and God will say, ask them this question. And I'll be like, that is my own head, that's not God. And God will be like, no, ask them a question. And it's not like, how's the weather, or how's the Dodgers, or you know, anything like that. It's questions like, you know, what did you do that you're running from? Who abused you? What thing are you trying to hide from your wife right now that you don't want her to know? And every time God does that, I'm like, I am not going to ask that question. And God's like, ask the question. I'm like, I am not going to ask that question. God's like, ask. I'm like, no. And then I do because I'm a glutton for punishment. You know? and, and so, so I ask the question. And sometimes people will say, oh, what? There's, there's nothing. That happens sometimes. And, and usually a few months later, though, it turns out that there actually was something. But sometimes when I do that, people go, how would you know? I don't know. I'm just in the dark as you are. Sometimes I just simply trust God enough to ask the question when he tells me. That's all. I mean, and when that happens, people who start to talk to those things begin to face their brokenness, and that's part of redemption. 
but I always have this fear when God does this thing, when I, when I know it's God clearly, that it might be me. And so I vacillate you know, between, is this really God, is this me, and I mean, I'm going to look really stupid if I say this thing and it's not really God. I mean, think of this. This is Peter, okay? Peter gets out of the boat to walk on the water, and he sinks. That's Peter. And so I think he's like, man, if I say this and she doesn't get up, this is just going to be awkward. So what do I do? And I think he says, Tabitha, arise. And she raises up. And I think he's like, oh, thank Jesus. That would have been weird. You know, and so I think, I think he's like really happy about this. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, was she mad? What, you brought me back for this? I was with Jesus. What's Peter? You know. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. This in the Greek is like a gentleman hands her his hand so he helps her get up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. R.C. Sproul said that this is like a foretaste of heaven, a foretaste because Tabitha and Peter will both die eventually, but they will eventually again rise and then live forever. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So what happened because of the work, because of Peter's decision to live for Jesus no matter where he was? People started following Jesus. They loved Jesus and saw what he was doing in people's lives because Peter simply saw himself as being sent. Then you have this interesting line. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And I know it's like a throwaway line, like, how are we going to end this? Well, have him, he just stayed at the tanner's house. Well, that's not what that is. A tanner was someone considered by Jews to be unclean because of their job. Okay, so they worked with animal carcasses. They're these dead things, so they were unclean. And what you see is Peter's decision now to start looking further and further and further out from what social boundaries said were okay. Things are no longer stopping him from showing others the love of Christ. Peter is now going to places that nobody ever had before to bring the grace of God to the world. And what I think is interesting in these verses is it's easy to look at the words of scriptures and think these guys had no doubt at all. Oh, I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to go do this. But I bet if you ask them, they were constantly second-guessing themselves. Not second-guessing the call of Jesus in their life. Okay, But second-guessing, am I really supposed to do this? Is this where I'm supposed to be? I mean, you don't read of all the flack that Peter probably got for staying with a tanner, for touching the dead body of Tabitha, for going to a bedridden man who everybody else thought was that way because of his own sin. What we read constantly in the scriptures is the result of some very hard decisions to love Jesus first, no matter what anybody said. And I don't think that Peter always got a definitive outline of all the places that he was supposed to go. He was just living and trusting, and God used him exactly where he was. Now, in the book I was reading, uh, Ortberg says this. He says, the sequence of the Bible is usually not like this. It's usually not where you have this calling from God. Okay, I got to hear coming. Then you have this deep feeling of peace. Oh, I must go here because I feel so peaceful about it. Then you have a decision to obey because you have so much peace. And then you have smooth sailing because everything works out so perfectly. He says, no, it usually looks like this. So you have the calling of God in your life. You know, love Jesus, live for him no matter where you are. And because of situations we find ourselves in, you get abject terror. It's like, why am I here? What did I do? What's going on? But you still make a decision to obey because you trust him. But even that, then you run into bigger problems because it's not following God. It's not about being easy. It's about God growing us into the people we're supposed to be, which then leads to more terror. Like, what in the world is going on? And then you have second thoughts. Did God really call me to do this? And then the whole scenario, what does it? gets repeated over and over. Like, okay, okay, I trust God to call me, but I'm freaked out. But I'm going to obey, but there's big problems, and I'm freaked out. And eventually, through this process, what happens is that we develop deeper faith. Because God works us in places and ways that we would never even understand. 
Guys, being worried and having second thoughts does not mean you always made the wrong decision. I mean, sometimes it does. If you end up with a country music download, you made the wrong decision, okay? <laughs> but if you make a wrong decision, it's, always, it's not a predictor of what the future is always going to be. When we make decisions and sometimes things get hard, you can't go back and start saying, well, what if I didn't do this? Because you did do that. So what do you do different now? You trust God in the midst of it. You start putting him first in your decisions and you begin to walk forward. You trust him exactly where you are. In the book, Ortberg says this, Never does the Bible command anyone, if you're having difficulty in your marriage, try managing it by spending a large number of hours speculating on what would have happened if you married somebody else. It doesn't help. What if I married somebody else? You didn't marry somebody else, so stop thinking about it. I mean, maybe you have kids, and they're just like a terror. And you start thinking, what if I didn't have kids? It doesn't matter if you have kids. What if I go back in time and buy Apple stock? You can't. You can't. It doesn't happen. Well, what if, what if, what if? What? You live in the what is. The now. Today. What's going to happen in your future? Are you going to trust Jesus in your decisions? Like today, you have some decisions to make. Will you trust Jesus and believe in his love for you and stop running and place your entire life in his more than capable hands? You know, will you stop trusting that you know better than God and start to honor his call in your life? Will you humble yourself enough to accept his grace and be restored? Will you heed the call that you have been sent to your family, to your job, to your neighborhood, to your friends? Will you believe that? There is no other life than the one that you have now. Are you going to live it for you? If you live it for you, it will always result in regrets. But if you live it for Jesus, which leads into many scary situations, you live a life that is full and is free. Are you going to live your life in the bed that you made? Or will you get up and walk in the new life that you are called to? We talk about this all the time at Element. Romans 5.8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unable to do anything about our condition, while we were helpless, whether we're far away or near and bitter, while we were unaware of just how bad the situation was in our lives, Jesus still came and died. He died on a cross. He died for everybody. That is his decision, to love us enough to bring us home. Everybody, everywhere, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Are you in your life willing to live with the uncertainty of not always knowing whether you're supposed to turn right or turn left, but having the depth of trust that no matter which way you do go, where you end up, Jesus was right there before you? That's the question. Do you trust in him? Do you, do you hope in him? Or are you, are you always running around second-guessing everything that takes place in your life? See, when we're always trying to make all these bad decisions and it ends up affecting and hurting other people and it ends up hurting ourselves, in the scripture that's called sin. Missing the mark of who God has called us to be. The reason we talk about communion every week at Element is because you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we would understand that all of those sins, all the stupid decisions that we made, Jesus took care of that at the cross. Everything that separated you from God and you from each other, was taken care of at the moment at the cross in Jesus. God made a decision from the foundation of the world. I will save my people. I will love them. I will redeem them. I will call them home. And that is the decision that we in our lives need to first trust in and live in, because that is foundational to everything else we will ever do and we will ever be. That our God first loved us. That our God first sought us. That our God first saved us. And yes, you and I have made and will make some horrible decisions in our lives. 
But it doesn't mean that our lives then are beyond repair. That our lives are beyond redemption. We can still, from this point forward, trust God, put Him first in all of our decisions. You know, there are maybe some things you've got to deal with in the past. You've got to work through. You've got you to get through. But in the end, when you put God first in every decision, you will live a life that is full and free. Because it is no longer about you. It is about Him. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to, said, to take communion to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, I mean, maybe you've got some decisions in your life that you have to make. And you're wondering, what should I do? Do I turn right? Do I turn left? What, what do I do? Well, they would love to pray with you about that. They'd love to talk to you about how, you know, how you put Jesus first in those decisions. I mean, maybe you're somebody who's never even trusted Jesus with your life, and, and you would like to, and even know some questions about what that means or what that's about. They'd love to talk to you about that as well. Understanding that our God comes into our lives and rescues us just where we are. You do not have to get cleaned up to take a bath. You simply let him wash you and cleanse you and restore you. That is what he does. And then he does so much more by changing as a movement as into the people we're called to be. There's offering boxes on the side of them on the back. And we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is just part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's not forced upon you. It is a decision that you get to make. There's some food and stuff in the back. Uh, there are some cinnamon rolls and some brownies last service. You get the decision. Are you going to eat the cinnamon rolls and brownies? And if you say yes, then it will be really good if we put the parking lot even farther so you can work it off on the way to the car. It's a decision that we'll make to help you. (laughs) We always invite you guys to grab some to eat and maybe meet some other people because we want you to start walking through some of these questions and things that we get. Like when you open the sermon notes, you ask each other some of these questions. What things do you trust in? what, What is the first precursor to a decision that you make? Is it you or is it God first? You know, and, if it, and when it's you, you know, what are some of the things that those decisions lead to in the long run? What do they look like? You know, maybe some questions of, of when you start to trust Jesus first in your life, how does he bring redemption and restore some of those places that you've been or things that you've done or things that other people have done to you? You know, how does he bring restoration? Because this is part of the good news of the gospel, the restoration that he brings and the hope that he gives us. Because our God is amazingly good and he has laid a million things in front of you and said, go for it. Go for it. Just don't dishonor me because when you do that, you're going to dishonor my image in you and it's going to destroy you. So trust me and go for it because our God loves us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who trust you over and above ourselves. That you would teach us to honor you in the decisions we make. Father, for those in this room who have made some horrible decisions in their lives, I ask that even now you begin to start showing them the redemption that you can bring. That you want to restore them to true life. And for people in this room who are at an impasse in their life and they don't know what decision to make, do I turn left, do I turn right, do I go forward, do I go back, what do I do? I ask that you would bring them some comfort in knowing that they can honor you in what they do. I ask that you would give all of us in this room the wherewithal 
to remember to ask ourselves a lot of questions when we're so caught up in not being able to make a decision. First and foremost in that is, does this bring honor to you? I ask that you would take and you would remind us daily of our redemption and our restoration. That our eyes would not be focused upon ourselves, but they'd be focused on you and the miracles that you have done in our lives. Teach us how to live lives that bring you great glory as we live in the great joy you provide so the entire world would know how good you are. That we would not be racked with indecision and regret. But we'd be centered on the grace and the goodness of who you are and your redemption of our lives. And we would live in great joy because you are a great God who loves us and has restored us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.